if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And the first thing they do is they put confines on what they're able to do. They'd say, yeah, I would be an actor, but I'm not good enough. Or I would, I would travel to space, but then I would make no money. And or, or I'd be a doctor, but there's too much school. So you can see that people are very wired to think within confines. And I think once you really understand that movement is in fact a constant ebb and flow upon a continuum and that it allows for possibilities to be endless and that endless is in fact a good thing. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we can control endless. I know it seems like a paradox, but we can essentially control endless, Yes. right? Because we have a subjective experience and we have objective observables. Yeah. And it just so happens on how we're going to position our mind in that context. And, and we have the ability of humans. I mean, this is one of the reasons that the, the apes aren't running the planet or the dogs is that they can't go out of body. They can't take a step out of what we're feeling when our foot hits the ground and say, objectively, what do I see? But we can do that. Mm. We can take our minds, unplug them from our bodies and imagine a world of possibilities. And it's by breaking down those barriers as, as what happened to me by just expanding your experiences that you begin to see that it's pretty cool to go off into infinity. Just as long as you go to infinity, you grab something, you bring it back and you apply it. Welcome to This Thing Called Movement, a podcast exploring the medium of movement and looking into how it has the capacity to transform not only our physical bodies, but potentially every other facet of our lives. I'm your host, Marie Janicek a movement guide here to help people find their own unique and authentic relationship to movement through creativity, curiosity, and self-expression. Join me as I dive into deep conversations with a wide variety of individuals from many different fields and backgrounds. Together, we'll gain insight into their own unique movement experiences, the transformations that resulted, and how movement has affected their lives at large. I hope these recorded conversations will inspire and empower you to find your own unique movement journey in your life, in your own way. so excited to present this episode. Today features Jason Hamera. Now, if you tuned in last week, you heard me interview his wife, Marissa. Jason is the director of education for a company called Procedos. And what Procedos does is it essentially gives you a toolkit to be able to increase variability through a nice, easy to follow structured format. It's brilliant. I love playing around with the Procedos mat. So I highly recommend checking it out if you get the opportunity. 
Now, aside from discussing Procedos, Jason and I dug into so many rich topics here. I mean, there's just so much in this episode, but a few themes that were prevalent were first off looking at the importance of questions, specifically through the lens of the fitness industry, both on the participant side and then also on the professional side. We also discussed the element of the subjective experience versus objective observables. This was a reoccurring theme. And then finally, one of my favorite elements that wove its way in was the importance of using curiosity as your fuel for expansion. I'm going to leave it there for now and let the conversation speak for itself. But for now, just go ahead and relax, sit back, Tune in and let this conversation wash over you. Welcome to This Thing Called Movement. Today on the podcast, we brought on Jason Hamera as our guest. Am I saying that correctly? You got it. Awesome. So I know Jason through Procedos, where you are Director of Education, a little bit of uh, product you know. plug. <laughs> plug. Mm-hmm. But I just really excited to be connected with you. We also got to meet very recently and we just have so many different things in common, so many mutual passions and you're just such an integrated and an inspiring intellectual. I'm really excited to see where our conversation's gonna go. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, you know, to kind of emulate that, super excited to be here to be able to talk about this thing called movement, see where the conversation goes. Yeah. So why don't you give us a little uh, brief introduction in terms of who you are and what you're doing with your life right now? And we'll, we'll go from there. Wow. So many different ways this can go. So mm. the challenge, of course, is to kind of direct it in, in one way. And I, I like how you prefaced it by kind of saying procedos. Um and uh, yes, I am the director of education, uh, along with my wife, uh, Marissa Hamera, who I think you might have had you know, <laughs> on the last episode, depending on when this one airs. Uh, either way, you guys can hear her as well. Uh, but we're the directors of education at a company called Procedos, uh, who recently we got powered by the Gray Institute. And if we're talking about movement and we're connecting it to the fitness professional, whether it's a health coach, whether it's a uh, wellness coordinator, whether it's a personal trainer, movement specialist, chiropractor, physical therapist, Uh, The Gray Institute has been around for a long time and has really provided the foundation for functional movement. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Gary Gray is one of my mentors and very close friends who I've had the privilege of working with uh, and learning from for the past five years. And he's really kind of got me motivated to explore movement on a more in-depth scale. And then I was fortunate enough to meet Procedos. in Vegas, out of all places. Um, And then, you know, you kind of get your winnings and then can't shake them. So I got wrapped up with Procedos about a year ago, and I saw this perfect marriage between theory and practicality. And Procedos really is the practical arm of functional movement. And, uh, you know, taking my life into that education realm and understanding how to inspire and direct and really create an optimized learning environment for whether it's personal trainers, movement specialists, the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. That's really where I'm finding my 
passion to meet my purpose and, and kind of get into that flow of where my life is headed. Uh, and more recently with Procedos, we're looking to launch here in the United States. Uh, it's a Swedish-based product uh, that has taken off pretty heavily in Europe. And uh, we're looking to get the U.S. arm going. So we're, we're beginning a master trainer program. We're setting up educations, mostly on the coast. New York and L.A. have been our big markets, but we're mm-hmm. looking in 2019 to expand more throughout the country. We're looking for people to kind of take the baton and, and travel along with this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really exciting time for growth and, and even more exciting time to increase the capacity of the movement community. Yeah, I was just taken through a little Procedos experience with Jason before we sat down here today. And uh, I've been aware of the product and um, the methodology it opens up for several years now. I have a few friends, mutual friends of ours who uh, work with you guys. And it is just so fascinating how different it is to experience it versus just seeing what's happening and even seeing what is happening. I could always intellectualize what was the, the benefit and what it was doing for people. I just always thought like, oh, like I don't need this tool. Like I don't actually need the map to do it. And what was so incredible actually living through that methodology and through that experience is something about stepping on that mat and then having that those cueing points to take you through those movements and you, you can just feel this nourishing factor of like oh I, my body's getting so much more information so much more input um, and everything's working all at the same time in coherence assimilating that information simultaneously and, and the whole process is fun you know like mm-hmm. there are a few times where I fucked up and like fell down and like you know lost lost control lost balance but Mm -hmm. there there's just this nice element of play the whole time while going through it and I just my body felt so loose and open and light afterwards and I can't say that I always feel that way even working with variable movement experiences mm-hmm. in other modalities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think you, you brought up a great point. And one thing at Procedos that we like to say kind of is one of our taglines is learning by doing. And, you know, this statement can't be more meaningful when applied to Procedos because, yeah, you look at it and you say, oh, it's Twister. Like, let's be honest, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's Twister. Um, you know, Hasbro beat us to it by about 20 years. But, you know, when we look at a lot of the research that's coming out now in creating some of the most successful training programs, whether they're functional exercise, whether they're strength and conditioning, whether they're sports specific or anything in between, it's all about how engaged is the participant, Mm -hmm. right? And that's why sports are so powerful because there's this laser focus that you're looking to, you know, produce your skills, but at the same time be met with challenges that then continue to progress those skills. And, you know, you look at Procedos and you say, yeah, it's some dots and some angles and it could be kind of cool. And I, I get it as a thought experiment, but to really learn by doing it, you're, you're going to laugh, you're going to giggle, you're going to fuck up mm-hmm. and it's going to be novel and it's going to be new and it's going to be exciting. And ideally that leads to more movement variability, more curiosity, but ultimately to a leveling up of your skills and your actual sense of being that you derive satisfaction from it. And that's mm-hmm. really what we're going after. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I love that. So if we can actually take things in a slightly different direction, mm-hmm. I'd love to learn more about what your personal movement journey has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take it as far back as you want. And mm-hmm. and the more details, the better, especially if you can give us like some of the driving influences behind what caused your shifts from one modality to the next or mm-hmm. 
you know, each of, of each of those stepping stones. Of course, of course, sure. So uh, I'm newly birthed to the term movement, believe it or not. I was one of those people who back in uh, the 90s and 2000s when I was getting into fitness, um, it was all about exercise. And, and more importantly, it was all about Arnold, you know. <laughs> so for those of you guys listening out here, Arnold Schwarzenegger was my initial motivation. I remember watching the Terminator as a little kid back in the 90s and being like, wow, that guy's really big. And I looked down at my biceps and I could see my bones sticking out. And I was like, well, I'm quite the opposite of this guy. Maybe I should learn a little bit about him. And I was driven to buy um, you know, my first fitness book, which was the Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding, which is probably, I mean, you guys can see it's about this thick. And it's basically every exercise that Arnold ever did with, of course, him photographs. So it was a little skinny kid. I was like, yes, I can be this guy. I can be as big as Arnold and I can be strong and this is great. Yes, I want to do this. <laughs> and that drove me to get in the gym and exercise. Mm. And with, uh, you know, being in high school and seeing what the football team did and, and understanding that there was the bench press and there was the squat and there was the deadlift. And, and that's all I did. I just put weight on the bar and I, I uh, you know, learned a little bit about periodization and progressive overload as, as they were kind of coming to age of the time and people were getting more and more involved in them. And I just went for it. And uh, soon enough after that, as I just graduated college uh, with a degree in business, interestingly, no background mm. whatsoever in fitness. Uh, it was in 2008, the market was crashing. And I decided that, you know, I loved being in the gym. I loved working out and I thought I could be a personal trainer. So I went to a little company called Valley Total Fitness, uh, had a three second interview because that's how Valley's hired trainers at the time. <laughs> and uh, they're like, well, what's your experience? I'm like, muscle and fitness, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I like to bench press and deadlift. They're like, you're hired. Wow. I was like, this is great. I get to do what I love. Um, but, you know, what I loved isn't necessarily what everyone loved. And it didn't matter if I had the, you know, 250 pound overweight person to the, you know, 100 pound skinny kid. Everyone bench pressed and deadlift and mm -hmm. squatted. And there was zero variability. There was just all brute strength. Yeah. And, um, you know, so from my beginnings as, as this exercise driven, non-variable, very linearly focused individual, you know, I, I infused my passion into it, but that passion began to spark a curiosity. And that curiosity came from my experience of different people, different clubs, and really just, I think the evolution of me, you know, I was going through my early twenties at the time and I had nothing to do, but prove my superiority because that's what we do, I suppose, yeah. in the fitness industry yeah. at that time, or at least that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for everyone. But uh, all I wanted to do is, as a young skinny kid who gained some muscles was show how big and strong I was. So it was deadlifting 500 pounds. It was throwing 135 on the bicep curl and just swinging it up. All the pre-workouts, you know, at 23 years old. Oh. And um, that was my start with exercise. And But it, it wasn't complete. And it wasn't complete because when I looked at the faces of my clients and when I really took a step back and tried to analyze why I didn't have the retention, why people were cycling through me, and this is now getting into the you know 2011 area, 2012, so functional movement starting to come of age, sort of say. It was always there. It was just now I was beginning, for me, I was beginning to learn more and more about it, that uh, I begin to kind of question what, what was going on. Why can't mm -hmm. I make everyone bench press and then why are these people leaving me? Why is this not fun for them? And uh, so it was around that time, interestingly, you know, five years after I was a trainer, I got my first certification through NASA. Uh, 
um, and you know, Dr. Michael Clark and Lane Parasino who relaunched NASM and of course, and I went through the corrective exercise specialist and then all of a sudden I was, I was kind of hooked because now I saw something that I hadn't seen before, which was you can vary things. And at the very beginning stages of it, it was even if it was, uh, you know, you're doing an anterior lunge to a same side lateral lunge. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool because for so long I was just one direction all the mm -hmm. time. And that then of course, stirred up more curiosity because then this thing called the TRX came around and I was like, well, this is totally not like anything I've seen, but mm -hmm. that's what those functional people do. That's not really, that's not training. Mm. Didn't take me long to change my opinion quickly, especially after you learn by doing. So you get in this thing called the TRX. And even if now we know there's a much more advanced way of thinking about it back then, it was, this is really cool. This is novel. This is new. And, uh, you know, so I got to work with, um, he was actually an ex-Navy SEAL who worked with Randy Hetrick when he was developing the TRX. And I learned right from the horse's mouth how it worked. Once again, early on, you know, as it was launching and becoming more of a well-known name. And I was like, well, this is cool. If I can integrate this, well, what else can I integrate? And then there was kettlebells. And then at the time there was Viper and Michelle was in the Equinox system. And I got to meet him out the gate. And, oh, wait a second. If you shift this way, it creates this whole cool thing in your body. Didn't understand any of it, but I was like, this is really cool. And so I think it was the layering of these experiences that just kept kind of wearing down my guard of one-mindedness. And it was just, you know, call it happen chance, call it luck, call it determine, you know, determinism, call it whatever you want. But my path had taken me to a point where curiosity overwhelmed my consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it, that curiosity then led me to say, well, now I'm learning a lot of these structured programs and these structured things that are talking more about movement versus exercise where else can I go? And it was back in 2015 that I was becoming ready to be a physical therapist because I realized as, as my passion had taken me to training people and to sharing what I loved uh, in the gym and then gaining a love and appreciation for helping others see their successes and realize their potential as Arnold had kind of indirectly did for me, yeah. uh, I realized that, wait a second, I want to be a physical therapist. So I started taking all the steps to apply for school. And right as I was about ready to apply and take $125,000 in three years of my life and dedicate it to a certain one directionalness, again, pattern was reemerging. I was introduced to uh, a guy, Justin Gelband, who founded a company called ModelFit. And, you know, in his Justin Gelband way, and I'll rephrase his actual wording, uh, he said, don't do it. <laughs> he said, uh, there's this guy, Gary Gray, there's this uh, movement science called AFS or Applied Functional Science Gray Institute. At least talk to him. That's, yeah. that's all he said. Once again, in little different words, but he did say that. <laughs> And so I gave it a shot. It was the, the fall of 2014 going into 2015. I was approaching 30 and it, it came to the point where I'm like, all right, well, this curiosity has driven me this far. I'll at least talk to him. Changed my life. Wow. 110%. It took that spark of curiosity and it ignited it into an inferno. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was that moment where, and, and we can go back and talk to Doug Gray and, and Dave Tiberio and, and Gary Gray and all the people that I put through hell to, to get me sold on the program. Um, they broke down every last ounce of uh, one directional fence that I had. And they, the, the science itself created a, a vast environment of curiosity, but it also gave structure and framework. And the questions that they raised and the observational science that they put into place to understand the, the chain reaction biomechanics of the body and, and this big transition from exercise to movement was just 
so invigorating for me. And it was mm-hmm. so exciting to get into that world with people who cared, who had been doing it. Gary had been doing this since the 80s, 70s, actually. Yeah. Um, and I became a part of something that I knew I was destined to grow out of. And I didn't know where. It's back in 2015. But I can say now as of this podcast in 2019, it's my fifth year going back. And, you know, I don't go back to, to relearn how the foot moves because once you understand the observational science, it doesn't change much. But I go back because it fuels a curiosity that leads me to expand my mindset. And when we're talking about movement and we're looking at the relationship between movement and exercise and how I've evolved, you know, I started with exercise. I went into movement and now I'm in movement size or excrement. You know, however you want to kind of blend. <laughs> yeah, however you want to blend those two words, I've kind of found myself at, at, at moving closer to the center, moving myself closer to the meridian of what those two to polarities have done for my life because like I did with Arnold, I just went heavy bicep curls, heavy loaded linear stuff if we're using something out of the 4Q model. And then when I went into AFS and, and Gary Gray, I did the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. I didn't do any strength training. It was all about three-dimensional functional movement. And what I've learned over time is that there's, there's a place to live within both. And in terms of my career and, and, and what has happened to me, it is it is not only played into a passion that I have developed, but it has also been at the driver's seat of my purpose, where I'm now really trying to direct my life with Presidos as the practical arm, but also understand through the Gray Institute, the more theoretical arm and how you can kind of blend those two to say, yes, exercise and movement can in fact be one, but also I can kind of exist within this tension Mm. of both of these dualities that have been my past life. And, and that's really where I'm at today, where I'm sitting in front of you is kind of this blended person who still continues to blend. Some days I'm more one than the other. Like I'll still throw 135 on the bar and curl it up. And there's other days where I'll just take a three pound dumbbell and I'll reach across until my arm can't hold anymore. And um, I think it's this, this blendedness that we can take a whole nother turn, which we want um, about the existence of living and, and propagating our uh, futures, you know, and but the the biggest thing is to really learn from those and understand that both of those paths have kind of shaped me to where I want to go now. Well, I love where you just took that with the blended nature of movement and exercise and allowing yourself to shift. I always talk about things in terms of continuums and spectrums. Mm-hmm. Um, Quantum and, mechanics style, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but like the important thing I always see is like, the power in allowing yourself to explore the full scale, explore that full continuum. And if you don't know the continuum, you don't have the ability to shift along it to, you know, we, we shift on continuums all the time, whether we're aware of them or not. I mean, just look at how you set your shower up to like, you know, like jump in. What you do on a hot day in the summer is different than what you do in the winter. And even on a given week in winter, you're likely, your body's finding some state of homeostasis in the right temperature, but you're regulating based off of knowing those extremes Mm -hmm. and then kind of intuiting what you need for yourself. And I think when it comes to movement and even exercise as well, the ability to understand both and to interplay between them and mix and match is, is just a further extension of of being able to be in continuum and and shift where you need to be relative to what your needs are Mm -hmm. and this is this is i think one of the biggest things we are 
starting to see in the fitness world and in the exercise world and in the movement world as well. Like how can we, how can we allow all these different components of working with our bodies and taking care of ourselves have uh, the appropriate space and the appropriate justification given what we need without diminishing one another because they're all important like Mm -hmm. it's important to be able to exercise just as it's important to be able to move it's Mm -hmm. important to be able to lift heavy like in context of needing something we were talking about this earlier um it's also important to just be able to like like move like without pain easily like without any additional weight so Mm -hmm. how can we this is one of my things is i don't I don't want to diminish any one modality or approach to working with the body over another. I don't see that as being very beneficial to anybody, Mm -hmm. but rather the contextualization, like what's the why? If you understand the why you're doing, of why you're doing something, then Mm -hmm. you can actually get a better sense of what you want to be interacting with to achieve that why. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And tons of huge pearls of wisdom right there. I feel like we could just end the podcast now and just say, hey guys, go back and reflect on this. Like, this is how you learn things. Uh, But I'm going to kind of pick up with that last thing you said, which is, you know, we'll call it the why behind the what. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about really understanding context, this is one of those, uh, from my personal experience and also from a lot of uh, interviews and and speaking to industry leaders uh, of just seeing what's in the domain of fitness per se is, with so much information out there with so many, this is right, this is right, this is right, this is right. How do you decipher those? Mm -hmm. And when it comes to something like movement, um, you know, there's, there's two things that we can really split it into that are, I want to say fact, right? We have a subjective experience, but we also have objective observations. And, And these can be true of almost any contextualization, but if we take it in the subject of movement, there is something you're experiencing when you move, mm-hmm. but there's something I'm observing when I watch you move. Some people might say this is one and the same, but I think we know as fitness professionals, these are vastly different, right? Yeah. Let's take the very common internal cue of, hey man, squeeze your butt, right? <laughs> now, if, you know, once again, keeping this, yeah, keeping this, keeping this PG, right? If, if I'm evaluating a, um, a potential client or, or anyone who has any type of dysfunction or let's say that their glutes are dead, which as mm-hmm. we know is an absolute fallacy because if my glutes were dead, <laughs> I would have fallen over now because the system wouldn't be able to work in conjunction. But if let's say we take an industry standard term such as fire your glutes or turn on your glutes or squeeze your glutes, right? And you know, you have this internal sensation of what that means, right? And I have an external observation of do I see anything happening? And we, we have to take a step back and say, well, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. And usually we'll say, okay, because we want to activate the glutes because if we activate the glutes, let's say the, the goal is toning, well, we can potentially get a butt lift because if the glutes are more activated, we can get them to fire more, which means they work more, which means with exercise, they get lifted. Let's say that we've identified that glutes cause lower back pain if they're not firing. So mm-hmm. we try and get them to fire to take stress off the SI joint and therefore you have no more back pain. Mm-hmm. Under further scrutiny and observation of these very literal statements, we have to ask ourselves, well, why exactly is that what we're focused on? Mm -hmm. And the contextual goal is really something that, you know, people ask is kind of like a, a, you know, when I meet you, what are your goals? And then that's usually all they talk about, right? And um, 
you know, every single movement that we have, every single exercise needs to have a contextual goal. Mm -hmm. And if we're just squeezing the glutes to try and relieve lower back pain, well, we have to say, well, where are we getting lower back pain to begin with? That's the next logical question. But we almost never do that. We say, all right, well, let's squeeze the butt or let's activate the glutes to create a toning environment. But where do we want the butt toned? Mm. Do we want it toned sitting? Do we want it standing? Do we want it moving? Do we want it to reduce lower back pain? Do we want you to be able to perform athletically on a field and decelerate an anterior lunge as you're going to kick a soccer ball in the frontal plane? How do we want that glute to fire? We never ask that. We just say, all right, do some glute bridges with the band because we think that that's going to derive an intrinsic sensation to the glutes because neurologically they will fire. Mm -hmm. But is that connected to the contextual goal of glutes activating, right? Mm -hmm. Do you see where that's kind of going? I know that might've went down a little bit. Of no, a I, I totally, I get it. But, it's like, even the words we use in the fitness industry that we think mean something like you're saying tone. Well, like, yeah, you can have great tone, like in a seated position, if, if you've conditioned your body to do that well. Right. You know? exactly. <laughs> and yeah. And I think the big thing is, is just understanding subjectively, what do we want to have happen? And does that match our objective interventions? Mm -hmm. Right. Because subjectively you can feel your glutes, AKA squeeze them, AKA create neural drive, AKA eccentrically load them and on and on and on and on. Or I can objectively look at you and say, is that hip going through the motions that I want it to go through? Because I know scientifically that it's going to give me the stabilizing reaction to reduce lower back pain, to maximize the effort of the glute. So from a toning perspective, maybe let's say time under tension, let's say the ability to decelerate and reaccelerate load. So it creates stability at the knee and stability at the lower back. Mm -hmm. And am I giving the client the optimal environment to do that? Mm -hmm. A lot of times there's a huge disconnect between those two. And that disconnect usually comes in the form of a standardized protocol that is not connected to the subjective contextual goal. Like you said, it would be like, Let's set up the shower for a cold, you know, cold winter day. You come in, your body's really cold and you turn on the shower to cold. Yeah. That doesn't make sense, right? Whereas a hot day, it would make sense, but you didn't ask what is the contextual goal now? Yeah. What do I need to do right now? What is my body feeling? What's my inventory? And then what is going to be my objective external intervention to create that homeostatic state where I will get the glute activation or the glute reaction or the glute um, situation that I want versus creating something that's totally unrelated to the task at hand. So I have a question for you based off of this, um, because I actually, I observe this as coming from both sides, both mm -hmm. from the way general population has been trained to believe this stuff like works or how to be in, engaging with their bodies and movement and exercise. Mm -hmm. And then the fitness professionals as well. Right. And um, in your opinion, like where, how do we start to reorganize like this gap in contextualization between mm -hmm. like um, you called it sub something about i'm gonna mess up the terminology that's the, okay the subjective experience yes versus subjective experience versus the objective observation yeah mm -hmm. yeah so how do we actually find that place where we're not jumping into a cold shower on a cold day but mm -hmm. instead like create that modulation is it is it something that has to change on the outside like for the general population, regular people are coming into fitness or is it our responsibility in the fitness industry to change how we do things? Uh, the answer to that question is yes. 
It's both. (laughs) Of course, that's why we're here today. Uh, So it's actually, it's a little bit of both. And I'll take it back to my personal experiences where I was, you know, I started on the exercise side, very linear, very one-minded. And then I moved to a space of nebulous freedom, right? Everything moves all over the place all the time. And we should express that. But really the, the existence and the ability to progress is when everything is focused but still free so it's it's living within that tension of duality so the you know to go back to it not only does the population have to become more educated experience more and then make better judgments based on what they subjectively want but the practitioner also has to have more experiences see more cases and be able to refine their objective ability to assess because it doesn't matter how much the practitioner knows about what their body feels like. If you're thirsty and I drink water, do you get hydrated? No. Exactly. So there has to be a way for me to create an intervention or some type of objective thing for you to do that will satisfy your need. Mm. So if your internal experience of movement or of exercise or of what your ideal goal is, is X, and I give you an intervention that's going to get you to Z, but I don't listen to what your X is. Well, there's a disconnect. Mm. But if you can't explain that to me, then I might be confused. And if I can't provide an intervention to you, well, then you might be let down. So I think there's this leveling up that needs to happen synergistically where we really learn, okay, if I'm, a, if I'm the public side or if I'm the trainer side, what is the one commonality that we can both explore together in order to progress our fitness experience, both on the subjective side, how you feel with the interventions, mm-hmm. and on the objective side, me as the practitioner, how I'm able to uh, diagnose and be able to assess and deliver those mm-hmm. interventions. And I think the answer, honestly, will lie in questions. Um, I think it's something that we can both learn how to do a little bit better. And I don't think we do it enough, whether it's because we're not taught how to do it, whether it's because we're afraid of it, or probably mostly because we're afraid of what the answer is going to yield if we ask the questions. And And I think to get both of those sides to synergistically level up, create a better subjective experience for the client create a better objective intervention for the trainer, both sides have to learn how to ask better questions about the other side. Yeah, you know, it's something that I always, like on one hand as a trainer and as a fitness professional, you are taught to like take command of the situation, like be mm-hmm. the expert. And mm-hmm. on some level that's true, but at the on the other side, like I always encourage people I work with to like ask questions of me and also to question what's happening in their experience. And and a lot of what I'm doing is I'm always checking in, like, what's the, your experience? Mm-hmm. And because like you said, everyone's unique. And a lot of times what happens with fitness professionals as we assimilate our experience and try and, and shape that it, with other people, because mm-hmm. that's our frame of reference. Like it makes sense. Like, Oh, I had this crazy like moment where when I learned to deadlift, this was what I felt like when it clicks for me, this was what I felt. And mm-hmm. so that's what my, that's the nugget I have the experiential knowledge that did it for me. I want to give that to people, mm-hmm. but every person's going to have a completely different experience to get that click where like that deadlift makes sense or any movement you're teaching. Mm-hmm. And, um, It's like a big cornerstone of my work with intuitive movement where by not having so much structure and just like being with yourself, moving with yourself, 
and 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 having to be in the sensations of it it allows you to just gain a little bit more knowledge and experience into like how your body feels so that you have the ownership and you have the autonomy to be able to ask questions of what's happening and not just blindly follow because somebody has a certification in something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it for me that that's that's always struck me this has been a big part of my own curiosity and my movement journey is like that gap where people don't feel that they have ownership or command over what they're experiencing and instead they relay it to the professional mm-hmm. and there is benefit in like giving over your like movement experience to professional in some cases, but it really is a relationship. There should be give and take on both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that brings up another dualistic point is we know there's, there's two sides to everything. And Mm -hmm. some people are so burnt out from their own lives and their own work and their own relationship at home that they don't want to think about it. They just want to be told what to do, but let's forget about that person for right now. Let's assume that we have the curious client in front of us that actually if taught properly would step up and start questioning the individual. Well, now it becomes a matter of confidence. Does that person have the confidence to very tactfully just begin to question and say, Hey, you know, you're having me do this deadlift. My back's hurting. Is that okay? You know, to which uh, a response I used to give was, yeah, no pain, no gain. Right. We hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, While the industry is evolving, there are still people that pull from that mindset. You know, myself have coming from a place of that nature. And I think the encouraging point is that in order for the industry and for people's experiences with movement and with exercise and with obtaining a goal is to evolve, it has to be a a two-way relationship. There has to be a give and take to where clients have to become empowered to ask the questions. But trainers also have to create the environment that facilitates those questions to be asked. And, you know, it's it's there where I think we can we can really begin to get excited about because it taps into something that we as fitness professionals ground ourselves on which is you know we want to we we get into fitness to help other people you know at at least when we start talking about movement we start talking about function we start talking about freedom and flow you know if these words are in your vocabulary and they kind of define your personality whether it's your instagram brand whether it's your youtube channel you know if you're a person that really relates to these then you're also a person who is curious who is creative who is Mm -hmm. confident and who's also compassionate and it's it's this blend of characteristics as a practitioner that i encourage you to begin to add well it's not a c but it sounds like a c questions Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. into that repertoire and and begin to say like i will help you begin to identify Mr. Client or Mrs. Client or Miss Client, that we can define who you are based on who you want to be, mm. right? You're not trying to fit a mold, but I'll provide a framework for you and I'll guide you through that freedom. I'll help you learn to ask the questions that are that are valuable to you. And I, I think talking about movement and understanding that things move and, and that things progress, that if practitioners and clients alike can ask these questions, that the industry gets to level up. Hmm. Well, another thing I'm thinking of, because we, we've touched on education mm-hmm. in our conversations before, and I was just thinking in context of that, that, you know, a lot of our education system isn't even geared for us to think that way. Like, mm-hmm. and I just think about how many systems are like, this is how it is, and you follow the protocol, and this mm-hmm. is what how things are done, and mm-hmm. that's it. Right. Um, 
And I wonder if, if that that may actually be the real disconnect when it comes to movement. If, as human beings, we are not led to to foster our sense of curiosity, to question, to like have that openness mm -hmm. for questioning and conversation and maybe mm -hmm. like be okay with not always being in agreement. Like we see this in politics all the time, like, <laughs> right. yay. Um, but I, I noticed that and I'm, and I know you have a lot of interest in education specifically, obviously mm -hmm. director of education. And, the um, yep. <laughs> and, and then you've also shared that with me personally, but what are your thoughts on, on that? Like education and, and how we can, how we can use education as a vessel to to change our outlook on some of these bigger problems and obstacles we're facing right right well so let's keep it keeping it in the context of uh the fitness professional we'll call them personal trainers movement specialists physios you know anything mm -hmm. in the fitness industry because education as a topic is is broad. huge you know we're always you know, if we really look at it, we're always learning all the time. We're always experiencing using those scenarios to correct our con conceptual understanding of the real world and then updating it based on real time. Mm -hmm. But if we looked at it in terms of if I'm getting into the health and wellness and fitness industry, there's a level of skills that I have to learn to become a professional, right? And, and right now, those are mainly certifications. You know, there's, there's a few big ones here in the United States. Other countries are, are much more deregulated and there's a few other countries that are a little bit more regulated. Um, but most of the information, we'll call it, that's available to personal trainers is, is growing exponentially, mm -hmm. right? There's more and more voices emerging. There's more and more methodologies emerging. There's more and more fitness products emerging. And when you look at the definition of what education is, it's, it's not a protocol, believe it or not. Education, by definition, is essentially preparing you with a vast variety of conceptual skills to then make meaning of future events, right? Mm -hmm. So education is very broad, right? And it, it's not what we do in the fitness industry. What we do in the fitness industry is train and, you know, even a step lower on the communication scale, we instruct. Right. So if education is your top tier where you're preparing someone for lifelong events, like I could give you a skill that you can extrapolate and then go off and exist in the world. Fitness education or fitness trainings might think they're doing that. But in reality, they're training trainers or they're instructing trainers. Right. Training trainer says, OK, there's a little bit of wiggle room, but this is how we want to do it. And instruction is this is how you do it, period. Yeah. And there is a little bit of a shift in the industry, but it's still very much instructional. You know, a lot of the a lot of the programs that are out there are just very structured. Now, I don't know if that's right or wrong, um, but what I do know is that unless we're asking questions about it, we really won't come to the answer. You know, some people work really well if they're regimented. Some people work really well if they're like, "Tell me what to do." A B C D equal kettlebell swing, and I'm great with that, and I can relate it to a goal. And here we go excellent mm -hmm. but if you don't ask the question what's outside of that domain well you're never going to know you're never going to be able to experience the continuum if you don't ask the questions to define the continuum mm -hmm. and uh in the fitness world what's going on now and, and my take is we need to you know question the instruction that we're giving to trainers and question it from a sense of if we do intend to make it educational what's missing and i firmly believe that it's the ability to create the conversation around questioning around mm -hmm. curiosity and around creativity that's just not being put forth right you know uh working with procedures yes there is the, the it's a tool for variability 
But at the same time, I'll be the first to say it's still a tool. So you have to ask yourself, well, if I don't have the tool, what do I do? Mm. And that's that's a big thing that I, I encourage all trainers and, and all movement professionals and all health and wellness practitioners to, to begin to at least ponder is if I move outside of my current bubble of thought, what's out there and what do I want to be out there and where do I want to go with it? And then once you identify that, where do I go to find the information to fill that gap? Where do I go to ask the questions to the right people to gain the information to expand my experience? And essentially, that's what happened to me. I was I was treated in an instructional environment where I just learned protocols. But then I went the complete opposite, and I was treated in an environment where there were no rules. You know, one of uh, Dave Tiberio, the dean of uh, students at Grand Institute, his answer is, it depends. Hey, Dean, if the knee goes into excessive valgus and the foot's not showing me any version, is that good or bad? Well, you know, it depends. Mm. And, you know, as, as great as that is to, to create a conversation, sometimes that's not appropriate because you need to have quick answers. Mm-hmm. So once again, it's this blending of uh, looking at the fitness material, the information that's out there, taking it from the steps of instruction to education by allowing people to understand what it takes to be curious, understanding what it takes to be creative, and most importantly, understanding what it takes to be confident to to put those into play. Mm -hmm. So what I think the fitness industry needs is it needs modules. It needs, uh, you know, a a revamp of current content delivery to create these optimized learning experiences that have core values of curiosity, creativity, confidence, compassion, critical thinking at five C's. I know it kind of creates a trend, but (laughs) (laughs) it creates a little bit of structure, right? Mm -hmm. But it still allows for freedom. Mm -hmm. And by underlying these soft skills with the hard skills of a deadlift and what it's supposed to look like, taking that back to the example of creating a contextually based goal, and then ultimately allowing you to have that conversation with the client to maximize their subjective experience will give you the answer to come up with the objective intervention that ultimately this is what it's about. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, as, as trainers and as movement professionals, we are looked upon to provide answers. And that's great. But the, the process at which we get there needs a drastic infusion of new material, a drastic infusion of thinking outside the box, but also a drastic infusion of being able to create a contingency of where are we starting, where are we going, and how can we get there? That's completely unique and individualized every single time that we interact with our clients. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, that's life, right? Life is movement. Um, I think my wife might have stole that from me a little earlier, but that's cool. (laughs) But life is movement, right? And if everything is constantly moving, we know the only thing constant is change, right? And we also know that regardless if we acknowledge it or not, it's there. Mm -hmm. So we might as well become curious and that curiosity will open our eyes to the possibilities we have. And then those possibilities can become rewarding. Mm. And it's it's at that point where I realized in my career that, wow, education, becoming the director of education for Presidos and just sharing my passion and, and now seemingly what's becoming my purpose for guiding people through this thought process is, is ultimately where I think the fitness industry needs to go. Mm. That was a really nice answer. Yeah, I see your eye kind of closing. No, 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 I'm, not, I'm like, no, I'm like <laughs> thinking, thinking, I'm, I'm letting it. I'm letting it kind of marinate. Um, I really love how you you honor things like creativity and curiosity, but your ability to frame them and contextualize them 
in in a way that makes sense in a way that's grounded and and uh creates little structure and form and format for people to work with that was really interesting and I love the idea that you said like everybody has to like rise up to make this work. Mm -hmm. Um, Like what we were talking about earlier with the population as well as the industry itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're all trying to help each other, right? Like, like that's what we're here in. Like, why we're even here today? Why we ended up where we did Mm -hmm. is because we have this desire to help people, and and people want us to help them. So how can we all make this? better for everybody exactly exactly and it it does in fact work i mean this is kind of one of the criticisms is when you look at what the human conundrum is right it's getting along versus getting ahead that's Mm. ultimately the human conundrum if i get along with someone someone else can get ahead because getting along slows you down and if i get ahead that means i have to have people below me because what am i getting ahead of if not other people Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this kind of paradoxical question in terms of our existence that that bleeds into everything we do. And once again, if it's there, whether we like it or not, so we might as well create a conversation around it because then we can start looking for the answers and, and, and questions will, in fact, provide answers. But we just have to know what type of questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Very what questions to ask? Take a moment of silence for the question. Huh. Well, I'm about to filter in another question now for mm-hmm. you. So that sure. we've, we've gotten so much information about who you are and what you're passionate about. But mm-hmm. uh, we did kind of touch a little bit on like definition of movement. Right. But if you want to go ahead and like get very specific with it and tell mm-hmm. us what your definition of movement is mm-hmm. or what movement means to you. Sure, sure. So. Um, yeah, I, I did hit on it a little more, but to kind of, you know, if you're scrolling through your podcast, you can come to whatever minute this is and replay it. So you can get it down. <laughs> uh, but to me, movement is the convergence of the subjective experience with the objective observables. Um, um, and that's it, right? Because everything moves, right? Whether it's the breath through your lungs, whether it's the molecules in the air, whether, believe it or not, it's the atoms in this table, uh, everything moves. And both the object that's moving has an experience and the observer has an observation. And it's the symbiotic combination of these two that create the contextual experience of what in fact movement is. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives me freedom to say it's individually experienced, but it's also observationally popularized, meaning that every time you take a step, like everyone knows what walking is, even if you're not a movement mm-hmm. professional, you can know nothing about it and you can look at someone, you can describe walking. Mm. You can also be the walker and experience the act of walking. Now, both of those are very separate, but both of those are the same. You might be experiencing pain when you walk in the effect of an excessively pronated foot. And you might be taking a step and saying, ow, ow, ow. Now, me as the observer could be looking at the, you walking and I could be observing excessive pronation in the foot, mm-hmm. right? Your experience could be nothing but pain because you're not sitting there going, shit, my foot's collapsing. My, my, I can't invert through when I'm going through dorsiflexion. I'm getting all nerdy and scientific mm-hmm. with the biomechanics of the foot. Most people don't do that. But I can be looking at the foot and going through those. It's mm-hmm. the exact same experience just shot from two different angles. Mm-hmm. And essentially, that's what I believe movement is. It's there has to be a subject, there has to be an object, and it's the conversion and the intersection of those two experiences that really just defines movement. It's so fascinating you say that because I think I, I've, 
I'm really interested in how movement works on both of those levels. I've just never heard somebody position it in that way, but mm -hmm. there's, there's a powerful, uh, powerful lesson in there. And mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating because I always love thinking about like the internal awareness of movement and, you know, that if, like getting really plugged into the experience. I'm also fascinated by how you can read movement and, mm -hmm. and you're always uptaking so much information on so many different levels mm -hmm. about a person just when you're sitting and talking mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. When you see someone walking down the street, I, I even go as far as to say like the people we are drawn to or attracted to, like when it comes to like friendships, romantic partnerships, you name it, that's actually all being kind of filtered through the lens of movement, mm -hmm. whether you're aware of it or not. Mm -hmm. And so that that's just like a really fascinating way to look at the blend of both the subjective and then the objective experience and where they collide. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, then there's that we, we can talk about energy as well. And there's obviously the scientific definition of energy, but there's also the subjective definition of energy. Mm -hmm. And we know that energy exists between the context of the two. And when we look at movement, uh, one of the really cool things, and, and this is to kind of reel you guys back in if we've kind of gotten off the deep end in the, in the nebulous <laughs> philosophical understanding of movement, but to reel you back in and put it in real terms, you know, you could be going back to the walking, right? And, and we, as humans, we have this bipedal gait biomechanic that everyone follows. And, and it's slightly varied, but we can almost assume with 99% accuracy that every time someone takes a step, all these motions and movements will in fact occur for you to be successful at walking. Now, there are those few retro walkers. I've seen them before. They walk backwards all the time. Those people really do exist. That's why I say 99%. But if you're looking at an anterior situated human being who is gating forward, you'll know that their ankle, when it hits the ground, has to go through eversion. Right? That, that is almost a 100% guarantee. So that is an objective fact, an observable objective fact in order to accomplish the task of walking. So if we learn what these population of objectively observable motions and movements are, then we can say with certainty we know what the interventions are going to be, mm -hmm. right? Because we know what the normalized motion should look like within a population range. And then we take the individualized exist, uh, instance that we're gonna obviously obtain from you because that's what your subjective experience is gonna be like, hey, I could maybe think that your ankle's excessively pronated, but relative to where you're at in life, like are you maybe you know a little bit of an older person who we just, we're just not gonna get that anterior tip to unlock to allow you to go through a little less pronation? Um, you know, are, or are you an athlete that really needs to come into more inversion to lock up and make a solid foot to plant and be able to pivot without pain? getting that subjective experience from you is going to allow me to then create the intervention to either say, hey, that ankle's excessively pronated, which yeah. I can objectively observe, or you know what, given your subjective input, that ankle is perfectly fine for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So in other words, by learning what the spectrum of normalized movement is given a certain task, combined with the subjective feedback we receive from our client, we can automatically generate an intervention that's either going to look to correct the current situation to leverage the current situation or to enhance the current situation and without both the subjective feedback and the objective observation that can't exist mm 
So if all I do is I look at an ankle and all I've been taught is, hey, if it goes past, you know, 25 degrees of pronation, that's bad. It doesn't matter what's going on in you. I'm going to try and put orthotics in. I'm going to try and move that foot through inversion without any relation to what might be going on in the lower back, the opposite side shoulder, the forward head motion. Maybe you're sitting all day. Maybe you've, you know, you've had an ankle sprain on the opposite side. Whatever the situation may be, if I don't gain that information and I just go, you know, protocol direct and say, past 25 degrees of pronation equals bad, regardless of who you are, am I really serving you? Mm. And I think when it comes to understanding what movement is, it has to be that dualistic existence of leveling up your objective observation ability, but also making sure that you're asking the right subjective questions to gain the information, to merge the two, to create that top level intervention that's gonna serve the person best. Mm. Yeah, right on. So good. Oh my gosh. I love, I love hearing you talk. It's Thank so, you. It's, it just... I do. I actually, no, I, I used to hate myself talking. <laughs> and once again, like everything in life, I go from one extreme to the other. So <laughs> I'm looking to balance. So if you could talk. Too. Well, why don't we actually take this in another direction and, mm-hmm. and you can be as like specific to movement as you'd like, or like, you know, if you want to go more meta and outside, you're welcome to as well. Sure. But what are some of the gifts you've received as a result of movement? So it's funny you use that word. Uh, gift actually stands for Great Institute for Functional Transformation. Or, oh. interestingly enough, the <laughs> program that brought me the gift of movement. So it was that program back in 2015 that was my introduction to the Great Institute, uh, very appropriately named, and it did not fall short of its delivering of superior knowledge, understanding, curiosity, all those really good things. Um, but really that it gave me the gift of possibility. And that is something that we talk about in almost a self-righteous, esoteric, oh, let's create possibilities and opportunities and success and all these very motivational, aspirational words. You know, we hear it a lot in our in our culture. Right? Yeah. We have many voices out there that are telling us to be positive, to look for possibilities, mm-hmm. to find success, to, mm-hmm. you know, create these opportunities. Crickets. Mm-hmm. And what I found with movement is that when you really understand that blend between the observable, obs- or the uh, uh, objective observations and the subjective experiences, you're able to put a process in place, not a protocol, but a process in place that allows you to challenge yourself to you know kind of grade yourself and check in but also to keep yourself moving in the right direction Mm -hmm. right you know there's that old maxim a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step yeah my question to that my contention is well what direction are you going right you know you could be going a thousand miles the opposite direction or in circle or that could be a circular you know how do you ensure that that step is in fact going in the right direction and i think that the biggest gift that movement has provided to me is it showed me that there are possibilities within understanding observations but also within being mindful of subjective experiences Mm -hmm. and um i'm not going to butcher his name but kale c we'll call him he's the author of flow Mm -hmm. um you know we talk about the flow experience we talk about the flow of movement Mm -hmm. uh and it's it's a a very commonly used term in in 
positive psychology and an educational psychology is how do you get in that flow state? Yes. And one of the characteristics of a flow state is where you get immediate feedback and, and where you get a, an, an instance where skills and challenges match each other. And by you know blending the observables and the experiences of movement, you're able to move deeper into that flow state where you can give yourself the feedback. Oh, is this where I want to be going? Do I have pain? No pain. Am I getting faster in my sport or my skill or my performance metric? Or am I getting worse? Uh, am I feeling successful today? Am I feeling like I can actually do this? Or am I so far outside of my range that I'm just feeling unmotivated? And you know, movement has really opened me up to that, whereas exercise was very linear. And now, you know, the, the movement aside, or the, the excrement, as we're, you know, whatever <laughs> word we want to blend the two together, has really taught me is there's an existence in between both that really just allows those possibilities to be endless, which for some people can be scary. You know, you tell people, that's one of the things that people don't realize. It's like, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And the first thing they do is they put confines on what they're able to do. They'd say, yeah. I would, I would be an actor, but I'm not good enough. Or I would, I would travel to space, but then I would make no money. And, or I'd be a doctor, but there's too much school. So you can see that people are very wired to think within confines. And I think once you really understand that movement is, in fact, a constant ebb and flow upon a continuum, and that it allows for possibilities to be endless, and that endless is, in fact, a good thing mm -hmm. and it's something that we can control endless i know it seems like a paradox but we can essentially control endless yes right because we have a subjective experience and we have objective observables yeah and it just so happens on how we're going to position our mind in that context and and we have the ability of humans i mean this is one of the reasons that the the apes aren't running the planet or the dogs is that they can't go out of body they can't take a step out of what we're feeling when our foot hits the ground and say objectively what do i see but we can do that mm. we can take our minds unplug them from our bodies and imagine a world of possibilities and it's by breaking down those barriers as as what happened to me by just expanding your experiences that you begin to see that it's pretty cool to go off into infinity. Just as long as you go to infinity, you grab something, you bring it back and you apply it. Yeah. And that's ultimately the goal of all of this. And, and I, I feel like a big shortcoming in our industry is that there is a lot of up here, positivity, success, opportunities, possibilities. And then there's a lot down here, A, B, C, D. But what's in the middle? Yeah. Where is the blend between the two where you can have all of these great things? But what do you do with them? You know, it's really interesting that you set up possibility in that way, especially when you first started talking about it as, you know, in some ways people are afraid of possibility. Like you said, when you give people endless possibility, they kind of get paralyzed, like, like oh, overwhelm. Mm -hmm. and, and they immediately start creating restrictions and structure. And what's been interesting to me with looking at possibility and movement is I feel it, it's like almost like there's this bubble that like with each moment that movement can push outside that bubble, just like nudges it out and then it like expands a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then, then I'll have another opportunity where like I just, my lens of possibility gets expanded a little bit. So mm -hmm. there's this over time, these little nudges that then mm -hmm. just allowed for bigger, bigger aware scales of awareness and experience. And then, mm -hmm. and then that's where like, I get the opportunity to, again, 
flesh out more of the continuum so that I can slide on that scale and go somewhere in between. And I think that's what it, engaging with possibility, um, it's one thing to go from where you're currently perceived possibility and then go on the flip side into endless. Like that is, that is a little extreme and that that's difficult to integrate if you've never been outside this bubble. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I, and this is just me personally, I think this is something movement showed me is if I can change the depth of my squat in a pad, in a time of six months, just by sitting in it more. And I literally like my, my hips open up, my depth improves, my conditioning to stay there for longer periods of time mm -hmm. improves like that's a form of possibility yeah. right i literally mm -hmm. just expanded potential within my own body and like into a position i did not have access to since i was probably a baby and and then you know th when that opens up it's like well what else is gonna open up mm -hmm. right and then mm -hmm. i go to the next thing mm -hmm. and the next thing and uh once you get comfortable with with being able to taste possibility in a real way mm -hmm. and integrate it in a real way mm -hmm. that then it actually gets easier to understand this concept of endless possibility that there mm -hmm. really it is infinite and you could literally do anything and and then at that point if somebody asks you the question like what would you do the tendency isn't to box yourself in anymore mm -hmm. because you've mm -hmm. actually had enough experience of that expansion that mm -hmm. you're you're willing to be open to it. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to do that, you know, we talked a lot about questions, but the questions are going to define a goal. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's by setting those goals super relevant. And really, you know, I encourage all of you guys out there listening right now is, is when you're setting goals to really think about what the implications of not only obtaining them, but what comes next. Yes. Right. Because you know, there's, we always have this tendency to want more. That's just, you know, kind of a function of our society and a function of how we've been raised in our culture is you, we get a hundred dollars. We want a thousand dollars. We get a thousand. We want a million. And, and that's just, that's money. Mm -hmm. You know, we get a 500 pound squat. We want 505, you know, and just yeah. in anything that we do, we we're, we're bred to kind of want more. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's obviously value there. That's kind of perpetuating our human races that we want to procreate and spread more and keep spreading our genes down. That's a whole nother biogenetic conversation. But, <laughs> you know, we, we think about just in the context of setting a movement-based goal, it's, it's cool to set that goal to derive satisfaction from obtaining it. But then we also want to, you know, we're not done. You know, we don't lose 20 pounds and then that's it. You know, we, then we, we, in the industry, we have, okay, maintenance phase. There's no such thing, right? A car doesn't move by sitting in neutral. It's either getting better going forward or getting worse, going backwards. Mm. So if you're in a maintenance phase, I hate to tell you, you're probably getting worse, maybe getting better, but most likely getting worse. Mm. So, you know, we need to recategorize how we observe this bubble of possibility and, and basically say that to move past it, we set a goal. And how do we set a goal? But we ask questions. Where do we get the questions from? But we seek out the right way to ask them. And that's where fitness education really needs to go. Mm -hmm. It needs to teach us how to ask those questions. It needs to teach us how to have the confidence to explore curiosity. And that really only comes from experience. You know, so the, so the major message of this and of everything we're doing, everything you're doing, this thing called movement is literally to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can talk about it. We can philosophize. We can theoreticize. We can exponentialize whatever you want to eyes you want to put on it. But mm -hmm. unless you do something, unless you physically create the intrinsic motivation, the subjective motivation to get out there and say, I want the goal of being able to run faster 
then you have to take a step back and objectively observe what is your foot going through, understand what the domain of required motions and movements are necessary for that, connect the two together, and then you progress. Yeah. And, and that's really how to do it. So, so friends, I, I encourage you out there to really get after learning as much as you can to, to opening up your curious eye to all education that's out there. And more importantly, to go into it, wanting to get something that you can bring back, mm -hmm. right? Not going in to say, I'm going to learn how to do kettlebells but learning to say, what can kettlebells do for me? There's a big difference in framing those things that way, yeah. right? If you go in to learn the system, you're gonna come out learning the system. But if you go in saying, well, how can I take from this system something that's gonna benefit me? Your entire perspective and your entire absorption mechanism of, de of deducing information out of the course is gonna level up because now it's personal. Yeah, And that's a way of not only increasing your objective ability, but also increasing your subjective ability. And through that birthing a child of questions, that's going to then allow you to serve your clients better. Yeah, I think that was something that was very lucky for me starting off as a trainer because I had no experience in the gym with weights at all. So I mm -hmm. went through every certification I could as quickly as I could because mm -hmm. I wanted, I wanted to know, I wanted to know, no, no. And mm -hmm. it wasn't about, you know, like, knowing kettlebells or TRX or or anything specifically, it just, I was engaging with my body in an entirely new way. Mm -hmm. And for me, I remember being at these workshops and just being totally like immersed in like this whole new way of organizing relative to the ground, my body to like other people and, and finding these new subtle like nuances and how it's moving and that I'd never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like this hungry thirst and like this like bursting curiosity for like, what does this feel like? Mm -hmm. What does this look like? What is it? What is it? What's going on in the background of it? Mm -hmm. What's going on in the foreground of it? And what shifts with this as I continue to play around with these other things, as I continue to implement it with myself, as I teach to people and watch that evolution. Mm -hmm. So that, that was always so fun for me. Uh, and I love that you mentioned like, you know, like staying open to like, what can this bring to me or what can this offer me rather than I'm going to learn this. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it just, it puts you in a, in a more attentive mindset. Right. And, and that's one of the big things. I mean, I think I'm guilty of this as, as we all are. We, maybe you're at this point now in the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we start to, we start to lose focus. We start to lose interest. We, we trail off and we start missing information because sadly the information isn't presented in a way that's optimal for us to absorb it. It's not presented in story format. It's not presented in our own language, meaning it's maybe too high above or it's too far below, or maybe our, our egos are getting in the way. You know, I, I already know this, or I already know the three planes of motion. Why would I mm -hmm. learn about them again? When in reality, when we're talking, you, you could be listening to someone speak about three planes of motion, which, yes, you might have a very good objective understanding of them, but maybe it's the way the person presents them. Maybe it's the way that they relate to them that might be beneficial to you. So if you go into a learning environment where you're just there to learn the system, you maybe have some barricades set up from past experiences or prejudices or uh, different thoughts about what, you know, how you feel about either the presenter or the material, that's going to guide your learning in a way that is not going to optimize your ability to 
create more possibilities. Mm. And that's, once again, that's dualistic. That's both on the learner side, but it's also on the educator side to where a lot of times we don't create these optimized learning environments. And to, to go out there and want to seek out the best ones is only going to happen if you experience all of them. Mm. Yeah, really good stuff there. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap things up here today, Jason, mm -hmm. uh, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share? Any final words of wisdom mm -hmm. you would like to offer our listeners today? Well, you know, I kind of fall victim to my own discourse sometimes. And it's one of those things. I'll leave you with a, uh, a maxim that I heard. I believe it's out of, it's, it's old, it was written in the 1800s called Jonathan's Fable. And it's, uh, especially when we're looking at and we're evaluating the quality of educators, we're evaluating the quality of education or training or instruction or just information. There's so much of it out there. And, you know, there'll be people that get up there and they try and consistently create a new way of thinking. And, and sometimes they're good, but the, most of the time they're very opinionated. Right. So and which are great. You know, uh, mm -hmm. this conversation is about sharing opinions. But I encourage you guys to really dig deeper into facts. Right. To, to, to set yourself a solid foundation. And this goes back to what we were talking about. You need to seek out and obtain the ob objective observables. You need to see what is going to happen based on science, whether it's physics, whether it's astronomy, whether it's biomechanics, whether it's biology, chemistry. Like there are certain scientific facts that are known and proven. And there's probably for every one scientific fact, there's probably 10,000 subjective opinions. Yeah. And once again, we know that you know, movement exists in between the two, such does reality, such does life. Um, but the, you know, with all of this, the, the quote that I'll leave you with is, be weary of those who uh, discourse philosophy on you for they speak like angels, but they live like men. And in thinking about that, we have to realize that a lot of the stuff that's out there might seem aspirational, but at the same time, those people who are delivering it might be living the exact same lifestyles, breathing the exact same air, taking the exact same steps, and maybe even not following what they're talking about. So in discerning what is valuable, discerning where you want to pull your knowledge from, you have to obviously have the confidence within yourself to trust what's going on but also the wisdom to realize that your experiences are the culmination of those who came before you. Mm. And it's very wise to recognize the difference between objective observables, scientific fact, and subjective experiences, educators' opinions. So with mm. that, be very weary, be very diligent, and always stay curious. Yes, always stay curious. Mm -hmm. That's phenomenal. Thank you so much for coming on with Absolutely. us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. This was, this was great, and I'm so excited for you guys all to be able to tune in with us today. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode on this thing called movement. I'm your host, Marie Janicek. And if you're interested in connecting with me directly, you can find me on Facebook under the name Marie Janicek and on Instagram at Marie Janicek. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and make sure to share with your friends and family. In the meantime, I can't wait to connect with you all next week when we bring on our next guest. Until then... 
make sure to get out there and move. <laughs>